This podcast contains description of murder and discussion on mass murder and terrorism. Listener discretion is advised. What do you get when you mix Harvard, homemade bombs, and a deep-seated fear of technological advancement? A serial killer, or an oversimplification. This is the story of a Harvard graduate, a serial bomber, and the audience that watched him. His name is Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. I'm Jim Williams. And I'm Maya Wilson. And this is The Man, The Myth, and The Manifesto. December 9th, 1994. It was a Friday. The bomb arrived in an ordinary package on the doorstep of Thomas Mosser's family home in New Jersey. Mosser's wife received the package that day, and she left it on the kitchen table. That night, Friday night, one of their neighbors had a party, and a group of kids wandered over to the Mossers, probably to get away from the adults. One of their daughter's friends, a 13-year-old named Robin, spent the night at their home. The girls were all in the house the next day when the bomb went off in the kitchen. The windows on one side of the house were blown out, shattered, glass scattered across the yard, and in the house, their father was dead. The bombing was horrific, but seemingly random. Why target a hardworking man, a dependable father? The Unabomber chose his targets carefully. University professors, airports, corporate executives, the only pattern? Ted saw his targets as criminals. Criminals who let technology run unchecked, whose actions were destroying the environment and the world. Ted was an intellectual killer, a political killer, and Mosser was a perfect target. Just days earlier, Mosser had been promoted to the general manager of Young and Rubicam, a global marketing agency. The way Ted saw it, Mosser was a criminal. People who lived through the bombings remember them well. They remember the paranoia and anxiety that took over America, its neighborhoods, offices, college campuses, over the 17-year mail bombing campaign. They remember people got their mail scanned for years, terrified to open any mystery parcel. They remember that more than 20 people were injured. Three people were killed. They remember the New York Times headlines. United Airlines chief seriously hurt in blast from package bomb. Four groups investigating. Mystery bomber sent taunting letter to victim at Yale, FBI says. Bombing in New Jersey. The suspect, meticulous in building his bombs, fastidious in remaining at large. And they remember how nothing like it had ever happened before. How even the FBI was stumped. People have made the Unabomber into many things. Villain, recluse, genius, hero. We want to get to the bottom of the myth. We're always searching for an origin story, to pinpoint the moment a man becomes a murderer. We tell ourselves he's different in some way. His own parents start the story early, when Ted was a baby. He was born in Chicago in 1942 to working class Polish-American parents. His father was a sausage maker. At nine months old, Ted was hospitalized for a week. When he was finally discharged, his mother noticed that Ted seemed less happy than before, disengaged, unwilling to make eye contact. She worried he felt abandoned and that he was developing a distrust of people. 
She tried to look for answers and spent long days and nights poring over studies about childhood psychological trauma from hospitalization. David was Ted's younger brother. Of course he put his big brother on a pedestal. First when Ted skipped the sixth grade, then when he skipped the 11th, even more so when he went off to Harvard at 16. David has fond memories of playing music together with Ted and their parents. My father had some sheet music, or we would tend to sometimes play Ted's compositions. Um, usually it was my father on an alto recorder, I was on a soprano recorder, and Ted would have been on his trombone or piano. Um, and every once in a while, my mother, who had a beautiful singing voice, would join us singing. And there you see, gosh, the potential, you know, like this golden moment still lived for me in which the family was really together and in harmony. Over the years, David and Ted would go on camping trips together. For David, camping with his brother was always different than camping with his friends. I went camping with this other friend and... You know, he pointed his tent in a certain direction. I pointed my tent in the opposite direction. He says, why don't you point it toward my tent? I said, oh, my brother and I always pointed our tents in opposite directions. So there was this real strong sense of, yes, we are together. We are brothers, but we are separate also. I think you see that running through Ted's personality a lot. David was the closest person to Ted but their relationship was still fraught. That separation would only continue to grow, especially as Ted began to close himself off more and more. After Ted graduated, he got his master's and PhD from the University of Michigan. When he was just 25, he became a professor at UC Berkeley. He quit abruptly after two years, withdrew from society, and moved to a cabin in the woods of Montana. You know, in some ways as a brother, I feel like I should have been more awake to his suffering. I feel like he didn't really talk about it, but I should have deduced it. Other stories, such as an article in The Atlantic and two books from Alston S. Chase, Class of 57, focus more on his time at Harvard. Specifically, the notorious psychological study he enrolled in as a first year, ominously titled, Multi-Form Assessments of Personality Development Among Gifted College Men. More on that in a moment. At Harvard, Ted lived in 8 Prescott, the designated dorm for the youngest and most gifted of the freshman class back in 1958. Like many of his housemates, Ted studied math, the kind of theoretical math we couldn't even begin to explain. 8 Prescott was also known for being socially isolating. Most of its freshmen lived in singles and interacted very little with each other, let alone the rest of the freshman class. As the reclusive intellectual story goes, even after moving out of 8 Prescott and into upperclassmen housing, his isolation continued. He moved into Elliott, which, in the days of self-selected housing at Harvard, was the preppy house. Think students from New England private schools. Again, Ted had gone to public school in Chicago. He kept to himself. John V. Federico, class of 62, Ted's classmate, didn't know much about him. But he got a vague impression. He was younger, and uh, uh, he, he was rather uh, quiet. Uh, he seemed introverted. Federico says the extent of his interactions with Ted were sitting at the lunch table with him a few times. 
The way Federico saw it, Ted was not the kind of guy who would ever be spotted getting a few pints after class at Cronin's, the undergraduate watering hole. After graduation, there weren't many people who could say they knew Ted well. Others, including Chase, point to one man and one experiment to explain how Ted became the Unabomber. Henry A. Murray, class of 1915, and his psychological trial. Though it wasn't, and still isn't, out of the ordinary for students to enroll in psychological experiments, Ted's experience was not above board. There wasn't a clear code of ethics or informed consent. And Murray was a man with no formal education in the field of psychology. But he did manage to gain quite a bit of respect for his work. He helped to develop the entrance exam for people looking to join the Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor to the CIA. It was a test with a notorious and psychologically brutal interrogation portion. It went like this. The facilitator, disguised as a fellow participant, would launch into an attack on the real participant's core values, on and on, attack after attack. It was meant to break them. But Ted didn't cower. By the end of the interview tapes, Ted is fighting back against his facilitator. So it's no surprise that, in hindsight, people suspected that something was off with the Murray experiment. But it's an oversimplification to say this experiment altered Ted in any significant way. Ted himself agreed as much. In a letter published in the 2022 book, Madman in the Woods, by Jamie Gehring, Ted's neighbor in Montana, Ted wrote, The truth is that in the course of the Murray study, there was one and only one unpleasant experience. It lasted about half an hour and could not have been described as torture, even in the loosest sense of the word. But here's where the story diverges. David's recollection is different. As David remembers it, the trials went on for three years. When David asked him why he continued going back to the lab week after week, his response was simple. Ted told his brother, I wanted to prove that I could take it, that I couldn't be broken. David recounts this in his memoir, Every Last Tie. The Murray experiment was the perfect just-so story to explain why Ted went down the path he did. So with the introduction of this narrative thread, Harvard was forever tied to the genesis of the Unabomber. Jamie Gehring was a little girl growing up in the cabin next door to Ted in Montana. She too came face to face with the media's Murray fixation. During research for her book on Ted, she asked the FBI for pointers. Well, there were some, I mean, there were some things, you know, that it was more like, maybe don't put emphasis on this particularly. You know, the, the Harvard experiments have definitely been, as the FBI stated, very blown up by the media. I think the, the Murray experiment one is like a little bit convenient. Eric L. Benson, who created the Project Unabomb podcast, sums it up perfectly. I think it's definitely a, a, like a, an oversimplification and it's kind of tying it into a like neat, tidy story about American militarism and capitalism and placing those kind of social forces maybe a little higher than this kind of one man's individual journey as a person, which I think had more to do with who he became. In September 1995, Ted was ready to tell the world why he did it the political message behind his violence. In 1995, the bombings weren't like anything the United States had seen before. The Unabomber was one of the first in a wave of domestic terrorist attacks. 
This was before the Oklahoma City bomber in 1995, the Columbine shooting in 1999. Today, these attacks are commonplace. Back in the 90s, they weren't. Though the public was closely following the Unabomber's attacks, Donald E. Graham, class of 66, the former publisher of the Washington Post, wasn't particularly interested. And then, one morning, sitting in my office at the Washington Post at 8 in the morning, I got a call from Bob Bucknam at the FBI. Bucknam had reason to believe there was a package in the post mail room from the Unabomber. There was an identical package sent to the New York Times. When Bucknam requested to take custody of it, Graham didn't object. At this point, the Unabomber was the most energy-intensive case the FBI had ever seen. 125 people were working on it. And despite having no shortage of physical evidence, the bombs themselves, the letters that accompanied them, they had no leads, only red herrings. After 17 years, they were no closer to catching the killer. The FBI was stumped. The FBI collected the package and they dusted it for fingerprints, but this parcel didn't contain a bomb. It contained a 35,000-word essay, Industrial Society and Its Future. Also in the package was a warning. Either the Times or the Post had 90 days to publish what would soon be known as the Unabomber Manifesto, or else the bombings would continue. On its own, the essay wasn't newsworthy. It was at times rambling and borderline incoherent. The manifesto railed against the advancements of industrial society, modern leftists, and environmental degradation. It championed anarcho-primitivism, a branch of anarchism that emphasizes a return to the natural world. Over and over again, the manifesto says one thing. The revolution, quote-unquote, may or may not require violence. tried to make perfect sense out of a world that doesn't make perfect sense. That's Graham. But they couldn't run the risk of someone else dying. And more importantly, they thought someone might read the essay and recognize the writer through their voice. Maybe the Unabomber had just identified himself. And since the Post circulation was slightly smaller than the Times, it would be cheaper if printed in their regular distribution than the Times's. We didn't want to spend one more dollar on the son of a bitch than we had to. Over a series of meetings with the FBI, Attorney General Janet Reno, and First Amendment lawyers and top editors at both publications, the Post decided to publish. Here's a part of the statement that Graham and Arthur O. Sulzberger Jr., then publisher of the New York Times, put out alongside the manifesto. Quote, From the beginning, the two papers have consulted closely on the issue of whether to publish under the threat of violence. We have also consulted law enforcement officials. Both the Attorney General and the Director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation have now recommended that we print this document for public safety reasons, and we have agreed to do so. They basically, I think, broke journalistic rules <laughs> to give a voice to a terrorism because they thought it might save lives, and it turned out they were right. Just a few months after the manifesto was published, Linda, David's wife, thought the writing style sounded familiar. David was less sure. You know, it was a lot of months, a couple months of, you know, talking every night, studying the manifesto, reading Ted's letters constantly, pillow talk about what we should do. Later that year, they consulted a language specialist 
who confirmed there was a reasonable chance Ted's letters and the manifesto were written by the same person. I, I was finally convinced by Linda that, yeah, we, we, we really needed to act. They finally felt certain enough to turn Ted into the FBI. Um, we'd have blood on our hands if, if Ted ever hurt another person. But they couldn't see the future. They couldn't predict the kind of notoriety the manifesto would endow Ted with for the rest of his life. The manifesto came back into the public imagination after the Discovery Channel released Manhunt Unabomber as a Discovery original series in 2017. It spurred a fascination among young people known as the Pine Tree Community. They identify one another through pine tree emojis and profile pictures of Ted. From across the extremes of the political spectrum, they come together to talk about their admiration for his ideas and their fear of how his words have rung true. Jake Hanrahan is a terrorism journalist and founder of the media company Popular Front. He spent over a year in conversation with a few young Kaczynski fans in the Pine Tree community. These were people who sent Ted birthday cards. And they went over his writings with a fine tooth comb. And memorized the entire manifesto, word for word. Okay, like, line six, page 40. You could probably quote it, (laughs) you know what I mean? But there are Kaczynski sympathizers in plain sight as well. Kaczynski has six books currently available for purchase on Amazon, mostly different iterations of the manifesto. They have thousands of reviews and an average rating of about four stars. The comments are pretty sympathetic. We can see how Ted's ideas from his manifesto have been adopted and subsequently adapted by different groups. They do this easily. Many of its points are now commonly held beliefs, anxiety over our growing dependence on technology, or disgust at the damage it's done to the environment. Benson credits Kaczynski's relatability as one of the things that drew him into the story. And I kept hearing things that sort of sounded like the Unabomber, out of the mouths of people who weren't violent at all, but who were really concerned about climate change or, you know, the escalating powers of artificial intelligence. These concerns leave many people with an urge to do something. It was this feeling of helplessness that people have in the face of these big problems. Do you radically change your life? Do you write to Congress? Do you join a kind of movement to get incremental changes made? And I think there is this temptation of like, well, we should just go to war or something. And here was a guy who kind of like, as a you know, one one man sort of appointed himself uh, the like the army in his in his own sort of personal war. But this begs the question: What is the defining line between a violent activist and a terrorist? According to Benson. It's subjective. One person's revolutionary is another person's terrorist is another person's murderer. But Ted's ideas in the manifesto aren't original. He draws from anti-technology thinkers before him, Jacques Ellul, Martin Heidegger, Jurgen Habermas, to just name a few. And he's not known for these ideas specifically. He's known for the violence he backed them up with. It's the violence that gave his one-man war all its power. So why cite him instead of the people he's pulling from? Is it because they didn't kill people? We keep coming back to the Unabomber. Why are people still drawn to this story? According to an article published by Rasmussen University, there are four primary reasons people are drawn to true crime stories. 
the desire to indulge in morbid curiosity, seek justice, cheap thrills, or increase our own vigilance against attack. It's also worth noting that the FBI opened a tip line after the manifesto was published, and in the following weeks, it was flooded with callers who thought they had leads on the Unabomber. Who was calling? By and large, women. Who'd they point the finger at? Their ex-boyfriends. With the true crime industry, that's Jamie Gehring, the little girl who grew up next to Ted. So many people are interested, especially women, because we are trying to understand what's created this person. And so I think there's still value in that, but the glorifying of these killers and the sensationalism around it is hard to handle. The decision to publish the manifesto was not taken lightly. People, some of the most powerful people in the country, talked about the consequences for months. To say it was carefully weighed is an understatement. But then compare that to how freely his ideology has been proliferated in books, movies, articles, and podcasts. Why are people drawn to TED? According to Brian Denson, author of the book FBI Files, The Unabomber, there's something intriguing about the idea of a lone man going to great lengths for the sake of an agenda. And he's a, I mean, he's a terribly interesting character, a villainous. He affirmed that the public was fascinated with Kaczynski, not despite, but because of his crimes. His high intelligence didn't hurt either. Here was a guy who was very methodical, obviously a genius. Kaczynski was notorious for slipping the FBI. He signed his letters with false initials, he connected the receiving and return addresses of one of his mail bombs to an unlucky Dungeons & Dragons enthusiast who would go on to become one of the FBI's top suspects. He even made his own nails, so there was no chance the FBI could trace the bomb debris to his local hardware store. At the heart of all this, the public is intrigued by how someone with so much potential could do so much evil. It was one of Benson's main reasons for creating his podcast. And I just wanted to kind of describe all the things that happened to him through his recollections and David's to sort of figure out what that journey was for him from a kind of guy who was really talented, had a lot to, I think, had a lot to give, but then went through this journey that got increasingly dark to the point where, you know, he became a murderer. What is the role of the media in all of this? They're the people that make the information public, his crimes, his ideas, even if it means potentially giving ideas to copycats. Graham grappled with the same issue while deciding whether or not to publish the manifesto. If it had explicitly advocated for violence, he wouldn't have published it. The risk of more violence would have outweighed the reward of catching Ted. It's the reason Macklin had warned us against linking to any unnecessary material in this piece. They didn't want people going down the same rabbit holes of eco-fascist research they go down themselves. Didn't want more people to get sucked into these dark spaces. Benton believes exposure to these things is inevitable. I don't think there'd be a way to suppress or a reason to suppress why he did these things. I don't think we do that with, with anyone. You know, like Al-Qaeda had and has like a political program. We didn't you know, suppress news about why Osama bin Laden blew up the, the World Trade Center. So 
Is it simply the news? Is it possible to report on the facts and not take responsibility for what individuals do? Say, publish a manifesto from a known killer, risk more violence, and leave it at that? Maybe the blame is lessened in hindsight once everything has been made public. But what about in the moment, in real-time reporting, as the violence is unfolding? Is it subject to the same guidelines? When and for what are we responsible? Days before the morning of Wednesday, April 3rd, 1996, CBS News learned anonymously that Ted was the prime suspect in the case. The FBI was still racing to acquire a warrant to search his cabin and arrest him. If this had gotten out, they feared Ted would have fled into the woods, turning their sting operation into a search for a needle in a haystack. So, at the last minute, the FBI met with executives at CBS News, and they agreed not to run the story, yet. In exchange, they got the first scoop when the story became public. That was the day the Unabomber was given a face. The Washington Post headline that day read, Unabomber suspect is detained in Montana. No more hiding. Just Theodore J. Kaczynski, class of 62. His scruffy mugshot, a pathetic, eerie emblem. But by then, he had already had a character in the minds of the populace. He was the anonymous threat in the postal system. He was the bumbling intellectual behind the manifesto. He was a myth before he was a man. Is this myth the result of true crime-fueled fascination? Was Ted a mystery we're trying to solve? The less we know about him, the more we think about him. David's identity was supposed to be kept anonymous by the FBI. For good reason. He didn't want the world to know he was both the brother of the serial killer and the one who turned him in. But the news got leaked. Initially, David did not want to speak to the media. I guess it felt like the decision and the relationship and everything was so complex. There was two things. It was too complex for words. Uh, at least the kind of words that the media wanted to hear. And it was too, it was like sacred space for me. Like, um, so on a very sort of personal level, I was thinking, I will never talk to the media. David and Linda had hired an attorney, Tony Bisegli, to advise and represent them. He was the one who eventually got through to David, convincing him that in the long run, he would be happier if he spoke for himself. Otherwise, Ted was at greater risk of being sentenced to death. He said, David, I think you should speak to the New York Times. And um, I, you know, I said, no way, <laughs> no way. Um, his, his argument was this, that if our family's part in this word wasn't told, if my picture and description of my brother wasn't presented, the only description that would be out there would be the description uh, made by the um, by the prosecutors. And of course, they had a, an agenda. They would want to put Ted to death. So um, he said, look, the chances of saving your brother's life are very, very uh, much reduced unless your voice is heard. In the months to come, Ted would return, pleading guilty, avoiding the death sentence, 
and receiving eight consecutive life sentences. We theorize. It's a tendency that's seen in narratives, the reduction of a person, their life, and their actions, to a simple moral punchline. Villain, recluse, genius, hero. To look for something to learn from it all. It's impossible to tell a story with every single detail. It's unreasonable to expect every single detail. So when you line up to tackle a story like the Unabombers, a story that big and that violent, it's natural that people prioritize certain parts over others. We're doing it ourselves right now. And at the end of this process, we're left wondering what we should be walking away with. David has a remarkable capacity to see the silver lining. All these levels of non-ego-based cooperation that really went into getting the best result possible in a very tragic situation, I think is worth talking about. With Ted's defense team, our attorney, Tony Besegli, our interactions with the media. I mean, if we hadn't turned in Ted, the irony is as much as I resented being outed as the person who turned in his brother, it gave me a voice. And, and Tony did his best to amplify that voice and to make it skillful um, and uh, help people realize, hey, you know, even this criminal has a whole, has a family that loves him. But a good family that did the right thing, you know, when they were really forced to do something. I'm Jim Williams. And I'm Maya Wilson. And this is The Man, The Myth, and The Manifesto. Our producer is Frank Zell. Our editors are Amber Levis, Io Gilman, and Frank Zell. Our fact checker is Sammy Dugasani. Original score by Benji Walfang.